Hello, and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast. I'm Alex Case. This week, we are covering The Man Who Fell to Earth. Now, when I picked this movie and scheduled it out, I'd planned to have this episode come out next week. I'd planned to have this be done in something of attempting to be topical because this is the month that David Bowie's latest album, Black Star, was coming out. It was a return from the single of the title track that I listened to to form of his earlier work, of his Ziggy Stardust, certain degree, his uh, Berlin Trilogy days. And I thought, hey, this would be great and topical, fit in nicely. And then David Bowie died. And now it's a situation where I'm moving this up to pay tribute to a fantastic musician, fantastic actor, fantastic artist. And I really wish I didn't have to be turning it up under these circumstances. So, it's let's talk about this movie. It is based on a novel, which I admit I have not read, of the same name, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is written by the author Walter Tevis. And Tevis is not really known as a science fiction writer, though he does have like significant amount of science fiction under his belt. Well, not a significant amount. He's got a few books, uh, short stories. He has... Um, he wrote the novel The Color of Money. He wrote the novel The Hustler, which are not science fiction. Looking at his Wikipedia page and his collection of stories, he has um, a few short stories published in Galaxy Magazine in the nineteen in the late fifties. He has a one in Omni, one in Fantasy and Science Fiction, a couple in Fantasy and Science Fiction, and this book itself, The Man Who Fell to Earth, published in the early nineteen sixties, nineteen sixty three. And I bring this up because there's some science in this book which doesn't make much sense if you look at it from modern scientific eyes. But if you look at it considering, hey, it's written in a post-Sputnik pre-moonshot stage, you can kind of see where the bad science comes in. And you can, I can cut it some slack in that regard. Indeed, the film itself is considered to be somewhat related to the new wave of science fiction stuff that, similar to the works of... Ellison, Michael Moorcock, the kind of things you'd be seeing published in the Dangerous Visions anthologies, for example. And I think that fits in well also with Bowie's work and certainly why he was cast. There is a rumor that Bowie was not the first pick to play the lead role, that Peter O'Toole was originally planned, but in the audio commentary on the second DVD release by Studio Canal and then the Criterion Collection release, where it was also put on there, the director says specifically he had Bowie in mind from the beginning. So, let's talk about the film's plot. To a certain degree in broad strokes, the film plot is about a person facing so alienation among humanity. The, per the titular man who fell to Earth is an alien who go passing under the identity of Thomas Jerome Newton, this alien played by David Bowie, who has come to Earth from an alien world which is suffering a catastrophic global drought. And he has come to bring water back to Earth. And he does this by, again, passing as human, and, in short, trying to make a whole bunch of money really fast by using advanced, advanced alien technology and kind of playing off the human capitalist thing, which, in turn, he's going to use to build a rocket ship, which is going to load up with water and take it back to his homeworld. However, when he arrives on Earth, he ends up running into social isolation, becoming socially isolated, um, developing, becoming alcoholic, 
and several other things. They, the filmmakers and presumably the book as well, use television as a representation of his social social isolation. But it really, it it's really comes across as a anti-technological message, which I don't think the rest of the film properly plays out. Or the film plays out, but I don't know fits with the source material. The whole idea of social isolation is certainly something that's not unfamiliar from the director. Um, Nicholas Rogue, Rogue was also, at this, prior to making this film, had directed the movie Walkabout, which is another book adaptation based on a novel about two white people, a uh, brother and sister, who are stranded in the Australian outback after a plane crash and have to make their way back to sa- to civilization and safety with the assistance of an Aboriginal boy, who they end up killing with their diseases in terms of influenza, that sort of thing, things we develop an immunity to. And the film works in a similar fashion in terms of having focusing on isolation through landscape shots, shots with Bowie on his own, the film also, the film has a lot of sex scenes in it. I might as well get, get this out of the way right now. There are a lot of sex scenes in this film, many of which feel kind of gratuitous, but almost also almost don't, because they are sex scenes that are not played for eroticism. They are played for, in fact, almost the opposite. They're, almost all the sex in this movie is empty sex, and it's explicitly made clear that it's empty sex. That there is not a lack, that there's not an emotional connection between these people. And so, to a certain degree, this is where I get into the, the anti-technological message where technology leading to social isolation, technology represented through television, doesn't quite work. Because we don't have the same ever-presence of television in these other people's lives, but they still have a cert- a similar degree of social isolation. The perfect example of this being the, one of the other major characters is Dr. Nathan Bryce, who's played by Rip Torn. Bryce, when we're introduced to him, is a professor at a college who has a background in chemistry and has been sleeping with his students. And after sort of a row with his boss, a professor, Canuti, Bryce leaves the company, leaves the, leaves the university, and comes to work for the company that Newton has started, a company known as World Enterprises Corporation, which is probably the most generic company name ever. The job in question is as a fuel technician, or in terms of coming up with fuel chemistry for Newton's rocket ship, which in turn puts Bryce into being Newton's confidant. The other major confidant Newton has here will be kind of his two, aside in addition to Bryce. There is his attorney, Oliver Farnsworth, played by Buck Henry. Farnsworth as a character is somewhat interesting in that he is one of the few cases I can think of where he is a gay character, which is not camp, and which is not played as a big deal, the fact that he is gay. He, at no point, asks another character, hey, do you have any problems with me being gay, with a response being one way or another. He's just a gay character who is good at his job, at being an attorney, and is trustworthy, and who Newton feels he can trust to basically run much of the day-to-day operations of his company. This said, the character does often does suffer the fate that many other gay characters suffer in film, and that he is killed, which we'll get to in a moment. The third confidant that Newton has is a woman named Mary Lou, who Newton meets 
when he's returning to New Mexico, which is where he landed, to set up a house and that sort of thing, because this is where he's planning on launching his rocket ship. And he ends up having a fling with her. And this is probably like, there was a sex scene early in the film between the two, which is probably the only non-empty sex scene in the film. It's also probably, there's nudity in it, but it's the one of the also late, less explicit sex scenes in the film. And notice the more explicit the sex scene is, the more empty the sex is, as far as how it's played by the director and how it's set up and shot. Mary Lou is sort of the desk clerk, bellhop, elevator operator at this uncase scummy but old old hotel in New Mexico. And at early on in the film, Newton has some significant motion sickness or issues with movement. And he pa- and he passes out in her elevator when she's taking him up to her to his floor, and basically they end up hitting off isn't the right word, but they end up sort of having an interpersonal relationship over the course of the film. Now the character of Mary Lou is played by Candy Clark, and I will say I am not a fan of her performance. Candy Clark plays the character of Mary Lou. In a somewhat annoying fashion. I don't know if this is a deliberate choice on her part or a directorial decision, but her character is both written and played as being very vapid. And it doesn't work with me in terms of particularly related to the character of Newton, where Newton tries, of course, the film, the people he takes with confident are not just trustworthy people, but intelligent, trustworthy people. And with Mary Lou, it's almost a case of she's a person for him to explain things to, certain things to, and also a person for whom he has to repeat exposition to in case the audience forgot. This is particularly a case with the whole situation of the fact that Newton, back on his home planet, has a wife and two children. And part of his urgency in trying to get the rocket ship back as soon as possible, is he wants to save his family. He wants to see his family again. And there are more than a few occasions in this film where Candy Clark asks, why you don't, why don't you stay here? Why don't you stay on Earth? You should stay on Earth. I love you. You should stay on Earth. And he basically has to, impl- has to either say specifically or get hurt or remind her non-specifically that he has a family. Additionally, the character of Mary Lou is probably attached to two of the worst moments of the film. As the process goes on of building the rocket ship and developing World Enterprises Corporation to pay for building this rocket ship, I need to mention that World Enterprises Corporation ends up drawing the attention of the government. And uh, presumably other corporations who don't like the idea of a company starting up all of a sudden and having all these great ideas and becoming a big economic powerhouse in no time flat, which is a very 60s idea because once you're looking in the 70s and Silicon Valley and the rise of the computer and microchip industry all the way up to the rise of the dot-coms and the internet industry, tech sec- the increasing booms in the tech center sector, it seems like a less of a big deal. It's the sort of thing where if you are making this movie now and setting it now, you'd be dropping the aspect of the film about the other corporations and just have the government grab have an interest in Newton because they think he's an alien, or they have reason to believe he's an alien, but they don't have proof yet. So they have that ever-building interest, 
And further, the Bryce has suspicions that there's something off about Newton, and so he takes an X-ray photograph of Newton and discovers that he is an alien. Newton can see in the X-ray spectrum, and so he sees sort of the, the flash of X-ray photography, and realizing that his secret's out, tells Bryce about what's go going on and explains to him, but shows Mary Lou. And the makeup job for the aliens is... I want to say it's... It, it's very generic to a certain degree. It's for aliens. It's very. It, it, it is very human. It is almost less involved than Star Trek bumpy foreheads. It's basically the aliens are people in full body stockings, covering their heads so that they look bald. Some skin paint and contact lenses. Now this works for Newton as played by Bowie because Bowie's physique is probably at this point where he was in his. Berlin Trilogy days, he was very, he, he was gaunt to begin with, and the amount of cocaine and other drugs he was doing wasn't helping at all, in terms of having him seem unnaturally skinny, but the response from Mary Lou is she freaks out, which on the one hand is perfectly understandable, but then they decide to have her pee herself, and it ruins the scene, is, particularly they choose to show it, and it doesn't work. It feels like unnecessary bathroom humor. It's like, you've already had the actress demonstrate that she's freaked out. Trust the actress to show that she's freaked out. Don't fall back on a bad bodily function gag, which is basically, yeah, just don't fall back on a bad bodily function gag to show that she's freaked out, particularly since far too often bodily functions, particularly that the, the, the excretory bodily functions are far too often used for humor and are associated with humor as opposed to any actual horror. You don't play it seriously in a horror movie when somebody pees themselves or loses control of their bowels. That's a that's a, done as a joke, almost uniformly as a joke. So there's that bad moment, after which we lead to the preparation of the rocket ship and launch day, and for reasons which are not implicitly explained, or even explicitly ex explained, Bowie Bowie's character, Newton, decides he's going to return to the house like one hour before the rocket launch. At this point, the house is currently where Mary Lou is staying. It's entirely possible that he's doing this to say goodbye to her, except the way things are set up, Newton is having his attorney, having uh, Farnsworth, pay off Mary Lou, and Mary Lou is not there at the, apart at the house, which Newton has. So, I don't know. And in the course of this, Newton, the driver, diverts the vehicle, and Newton is kidnapped by the federal government, and Newton's l l attorney, Farnsworth, is killed by defenestration from his several-story-up apartment window, along with his boyfriend and, inexplicably, a barbell. On top of this, in terms of weirdly, unintentionally humorous moments, the men in black who are doing the killing aren't like your normal they're almost your normal men in black except for some reason they're wearing sparkly motorcycle helmets which adds another degree of completely unintentional comedy there's very little that's actually sinister about it other it would have been sinister if it weren't for the sparkly helmets after this newton is basically imprisoned in a luxury hotel he has all the comforts he can ask for all the booze and food. However, 
He's also being experimented on. Um, surgeries are done on him to keep him to investigate who and what he is and his physiology. He is being fed ever more and more alcohol to play into his alcoholism and keep him sedated. And and as part of the process, also his contact lenses get fused to his eyes due to x due to x rays and, and examining him with x rays. Eventually, Mary Lou comes and visits him, and they have another scene of another sex scene. This one, by contrast to their earlier scene, in fact, it's intercut with the earlier, more intimate sex scene. This one is much more, much more passionless, and also, in a way, much more violent. It is kicked off by Newton threatening to shoot Mary Lou with a revolver, only to reveal it's loaded with blanks. Which, anyone who knows anything about guns and blanks and is familiar with the name Brendan Lee, should know that blanks are nothing to mess with, and you can actually kill people with blanks but this leads to the the gun sex scene where the two have sex and also shoot the blank loaded pistol at each other for purposes of safety they do have like a lexan piece of lexan in between them when they shoot the blank they shoot the gun at another person but still it is definitely a situation of awkwardness i mean this this is more deliberate awkwardness but also feeling a little off like if we stopped with the revealing the gun is loaded with blanks then moving into the emotionless sex that would have been one thing and I can certainly see this sex scene being prob this sex scene and the one earlier with Newton being the two least gratuitous ones in the film. However, the way that the, the incorporation of the gun into the sex feels just I guess at this I get that at this point in the film, Newton is meant to be self-destructive, and this is meant to show his self his self-destructive behavior at this point. But it doesn't work for me. It feels off. It is it, they're it could have been handled better, I guess that's the way I'd put it. Maybe it's a case of me knowing enough about blanks that I flinched a lot with the shooting blanks at each other in this scene. Basically up until the fact that I'm watching the, the high-definition Blu-ray release where I realize, oh, there's a piece of Lexan between them. Okay, this, is, this isn't as much as a potential mess that it could have been. Eventually, the government basically lets Newton go in a very passive-aggressive fashion where they just they keep delivering food but unlock the door so he can walk out whenever he wants, and as soon as he can, he does. At this point, his company hasn't entirely been dismantled, but has been heavily dismantled, so it's no longer the powerhouse it once was. His rocket ship has been blown up, and because of this, he cannot get the water back to his home planet, so his family there will die. And he's left on Earth with his exceptionally long lifespan. We, at the end, the film ends with Newton and Bryce meeting again in a cafe. Newton, it's several years later. Bryce is significantly older. He has a beard. He's gone through significant old age makeup. Whereas Newton basically looks unchanged. It's clear that Newton's going to live for a very long time. He's very alcoholic. He is also very rich. So he's not going to be facing much hardship in terms of living. But he's also has a very crappy life ahead of him. And on that downer note, the film ends. Now, moving on from just the description of, of, of the movie and the premise and that sort of stuff. The film has a very interesting soundtrack, which I enjoy and I would like to listen to, but I can't listen to because there is a massive amount of, for lack of a better term, drama related to putting together the soundtrack. Originally, Bowie was meant to uh, do the soundtrack, but... For contractual reasons, things fell through, and he was not able to do that. So instead, John Phillips, formerly of the Mamas and the Papas, was put in charge of, of composing the soundtrack, and he put together basically a band to do the soundtrack, including 
Mick Taylor, formerly of the Rolling Stones, along with a selection of stock music, and also bringing in a Japanese composer by the name of Stomu Yamashita. Or Yamashita. Yamashita. I'm, by apologies for mangling that name, I clearly mangled that name. And looking at the Wikipedia article between Yamashita-san and John Phillips, we have about 10 tracks plus another 13 catalog tracks, 13 stock licensed music, including bands like the Kingston Trio, Louis Armstrong, Joni Mitchell, Steely Dan, and Holst the Planets, Mars Bringer of the War, Bringer of War, and Venus Bringer of Peace. And that soundtrack, due to disputes with the studio and the director, was never released. The credits say there's a soundtrack forthcoming. The nov- the release of, re-release of the novel to promote the film says that a RCA Records soundtrack is forthcoming, but no soundtrack is forthcoming, and there are no plans ever to release a soundtrack due to the legal difficulties. Now, some, now some of these people involved have passed away, Bowie, but unfortunately, I think this is going to happen. Like, John Phillips has passed away. I'd love to listen to this film soundtrack. It, it's got some great instrumental work in it. The catalog portions, are the, the stock portions are definitely interesting. I'd love to listen to that. But other than that, I don't think it's going, it's going to come out. As far as how it's been critically perceived, the film currently has an excellent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics give it a... It has an 83% rating on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. Early on in its release, is much more panned. Ebert at the time of release, gave it two and a half stars out of four, for example. But over time, it's gotten much more of a cult following, particularly in appreciation of Bowie's work as an actor and some of the way the scenes with Bowie are shot. I mean, Bowie really makes this film. And the scenes where Bowie is on camera, he just, just works. To a certain degree, this is due to Bowie's head state at the time, as he wasn't actively trying to act in the role. It's much more kind of drawing from where he was with his sort of mentally out-of-state situation with his being on a great deal of drugs at the time. But it's one of the situations where it works. And I'm certain that Bowie now, well, not, not not now, but later in life, when he'd gotten sober and gotten off the drugs, could still certainly recreate the role and done an equally good performance. But he provides a certain degree, but not so much energy, but lack of energy here that works really well for what the character of... Thomas Jerome Newton is. So, now we need to talk a little bit about how the film fared in our tournament. As with several films we've discussed before, this is a movie which failed to place. It did not make it into the brackets. Over half of the people who voted in the tournament had not seen the film. I suspect, considering the resurgence of interest in this film following Bowie's demise, I mean, when I went to check this film out from the library, I was able to check it out prior to Bowie's death. Looking at the online list of holds for it now from my local library system in the Portland metro area, local library systems, there are like, one county library system has like 20 holds on it, another has like 30 holds on it. So a lot of people are are rediscovering this film to a certain degree based on Bowie's passing. It was a good film. I wish people were rediscovering it sooner. For that matter, a local movie theater here in Portland is doing a screening of it. The weekend I'm recording this podcast. So it is entirely possible that if this year, later this year, we were to redo the tournament, isn't the film could fare better, could have fared better. We're not going to do that. We have a whole bunch of other things 
I mean, we, we finished science fiction films, science fiction television, fantasy film. We got fa- fantasy television to work on next. But it's definitely someplace where there is could be a different performance of this film in the tournament in the future. I don't see it winning, but I can see it doing well. On the IMDb, when we put our spreadsheet together following the conclusion of the tournament, the film had about a 6.7 rating. As of this recording, similarly, oh, it's still a 6.7. As a Metacritic rating of 7.4, though, and the audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes is about a 70. So it's much more appreciated now, I think. It's, it's gotten a cult following. People are like, okay, I'm a fan of Bowie, I'm a fan of science fiction, and more artsy, introspective science fiction films as opposed to blockbustery Star Wars fare. Let's check this movie out and getting some appreciation for it. I would say, if you're a fan of Bowie, or you're willing to try out a slower-paced science fiction film, then this is definitely worth checking out. But, if this isn't, if that doesn't sound appealing to you, if you want something a little more paced, or with less gratuitous sex, or something you can watch with your family, then this probably would not work. So, as of the day that I'm recording this episode, earlier this week, we had the announcement of the passing of Alan Rickman. So, continuing with Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament, we announced in advance that next month, we are going to review Galaxy Quest, in honor of the passing of Alan Rickman. As probably, of these films on the tournament that he was in, this is probably the superior of the two, the other being the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. And while I certainly enjoy his performance as Marvin in that film... I think he fares better in Galaxy Quest. So, next month, Galaxy Quest. If you enjoyed the show, please get to us a review in iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your podcatcher of choice is. Reviews help the show become more visible. Also, please check out our other podcasts, including the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, hosted by Blaine Dowler, and the Silver, Sc- and, well, the Silver Screen Superheroes Podcast, which I also host currently. And there is the Unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, also hosted by Blaine Dowler, and rotating panel of guest hosts, which is an excellent podcast and definitely worth your time. It's really entertaining discussions about Marvel comic stories, and I think you all will enjoy it. So, again, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time, or hear you next time.